we go. <laughs> Hello, welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Glad that you've joined us. <clears throat> those of you here in Green Bay, as well as those over in campuses, some that are doing home Bible studies, and other people on the internet all over the world who uh, watch and listen to these studies. We are in <clears throat> the book of Acts. What we're doing is we're going through, starting at the end of the Gospels, and we're going through the whole New Testament. We're going to be going through the book of Acts, and every time in the book of Acts, about the time that uh, most scholars agree or think that you know, somebody wrote a specific letter to the church, then we're going to jump over to that letter and read that, and then we're going to go back and pick up and keep going and try and put it all as much in order <clears throat> as, uh, as we think we can. Um, the, the, uh, we're just starting now. We're in chapter 8, and so far, the church has just gotten started. They're on fire. They are just burning it up. They're going all over the place. Well, not all over. They're mostly just in Jerusalem, but I mean, they're just taking the city by storm. Thousands of people are being converted Incredible miracles are happening. Uh, they're just setting the religious order on its head. The religious leaders of the day are freaking out because they're pointing out that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, you have to remember, this is a very sore owie to some of these guys. It's only been a matter of months for some of them where they literally orchestrated the death of Jesus. Now you got all these people running all over the place celebrating that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, what does that make you look like? A complete moron. So... These guys are getting arrested, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're saying, you guys crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. I mean, the heat is on. Uh, the church is growing. They're all kind of just all hanging out together in kind of this big, I call it my Jesus hippie commune, <laughs> where everybody's just sharing everything, and I don't know. They, I think they literally thought Jesus was coming right back. Why would you do anything else? <clears throat> and uh, things are going great. Then they start having some problems. Uh, they start arguing over you know, whose people are getting more attention than other people and the kind of stuff that normally happens in churches or, you know, bickering at each other. And some people in the church are starting to be <laughs> a little snots that we can be. Ananias and Sapphira try to lie in front of God and the Holy Spirit and the whole church claiming there's something that they wouldn't. They both drop dead instantly. Everybody, woo, you know, let's not go there. So they're kind of learning, they're stumbling along they're figuring this out. Uh, so much has happened in such a short period of time. Remember, it's just, it's not very long at all that the, the apostles were all running away and freaking out, and Peter denied Jesus. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't grasp any of it. Now, in the context of what's going on and being filled with the Holy Spirit and insights, now they're reflecting on all the words Jesus said, and most of it, which they had no idea what he was talking about, is suddenly becoming clear to them. They are becoming emboldened, uh, again, with the miracles and stuff, so it's, it's pretty wild. So they, uh, because of this bickering in the church, they put in deacons, and the deacons were supposed to you know, oversee the little piddly snot stuff that the apostles didn't want to deal with, and, uh, and they listed these uh, guys. One of them was Stephen. Uh, and uh, Stephen, right away, then we read, is full of the Holy Spirit, and he's praying for people and miracles, all this kind of stuff. He's burning it up. And uh, a bunch of people got together. They were so, these people were so jealous that so many people were turning to Christianity. They're freaking out. Initially, they didn't really look at it as a threat to Judaism so much because they basically just were considered a sect of Jews. Everybody was Jewish at this point. But they didn't like them, and obviously they're making us look bad because they're claiming that we killed Jesus, which they did, and you know, it's all this stuff. So some people got really mad at Stephen, brought in a bunch of uh, false test uh, witnesses that said Stephen said stuff that he didn't, probably never said, and uh, everybody gets really mad, and they're just yelling and screaming, 
Stephen's just sitting there just, the Bible says they just looked at him like he had the face of an angel. I mean, the spirit of God is just beaming off this guy. And then he said, okay, what do you say for yourself? And then we read through it, it was a little painful. But Stephen goes into the sermon where he goes back and recounts almost the entire Jewish history to get to his point about Jesus being the Messiah and <clears throat> the fact that they were uh, as rebellious against God as their forefathers were in the wilderness. They got really mad. The Bible says they're just yelling and screaming, gnashing their teeth. Arr! They come at him, they stone him to death. He's the first Christian martyr. And someone has to be in charge and take you know, authority for this. You, know, you can't just go on killing people. So, but there was Saul that was there, and he was one of the big hoity-toities, and they did it under my covering, and they laid uh, everything uh, at the feet of Saul. Saul was there. He approved of it. This guy was out of line. And uh, so starting at chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that, now, the reason it stops, you have to remember these chapters and verses were added I think the chapters were added around the 13th century, the verses added about the 16th century, and they broke in some very strange places. That should have been at the end of chapter 7. But anyway, so chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of their killing him. And then on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered. So everybody just took off. And they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, I've got on order, just not here yet, uh, should definitely be here by uh, next Wednesday, some big maps of the Holy Land. We're going to set these up so you can see where they're going and what's going on. So the visual, I think, will be very helpful for you. But you imagine the Holy Land where Jerusalem and stuff and stuff is, is the land of Judea. And then above that is Galilee. Jesus was in Galilee. And in between was Samaria. And these guys didn't like the Samaritans, but they kind of go through their creepy territory to get to where they wanted to get. So now the Bible says everybody except the apostles. The apostles stayed there. For the life of me, I don't understand why they stayed there, but it never makes it clear to me. But uh, they stayed, and everybody else split. So they got out of there, and they spread all over Judea now because they were just all hanging in Jerusalem. And they're up in Judea and up into Samaria, which was a little bit of a stretch <clears throat> for the Jewish people because the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans were... They, they viewed them as half-breeds, okay? They were of Jewish ancestry. But what had happened after, uh, you know, one of the exiles that they had intermarried a lot with other uh, religions and peoples, and they weren't all pure Jewish heritage, and uh, they got caught up in all kinds of weird ideas about God. Interestingly enough, and the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. I mean, they really did not like them and would have nothing to do with them. But Jesus, when he was preaching and teaching, he didn't go to the Gentiles uh, that were not Jewish. In fact, one lady who was not a Gentile or was not Jewish came to him and said, you know, would you please help me? And remember what Jesus said. He said, well, it's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. Basically calls the lady a dog. It's kind of embarrassing. But she said, well, even the dogs get the crumbs off the master's table. Jesus said, wow, okay, that's pretty great faith. So he answered her request, but he just did not go. He was sent, the Bible says, first and foremost to the Jewish people. Uh, now, you would think in a purest sense that Jesus would have stuck just in Judea and avoided the Samaritans because they weren't pure Jewish, but he stretched them in that he started reaching out to the Samaritans. 
And you remember the woman at the well, right? And uh, she was a Samaritan woman. And he's ministering to her and preaching the gospel, and she's testifying about this Jesus. Jesus did tell her, you know, you Samaritans don't really know what you're talking about <laughs> because they were kind of all jacked up. Their theology had gotten crazy because what had happened, and uh, actually this happened a lot in early Christianity where people would come to f- Jesus, but they brought a lot of their pagan ideas in with them. And, uh, and churches to this day debate on what should or should not be involved in Christianity. We... Uh, evangelicals, uh, Bible-believing people tend to just focus. If it's not in the Bible, we're not interested. All right? There's lots of things that churches do today, especially mainline churches, that are not in the Bible at all. They just made it up, or they assumed it was some kind of revelation that they received later. Our argument is what they did is just pick up pagan principles <laughs> along the way. Again, no big fight with these people, but uh, we, by and large, reject that. But it happened to Christianity, it happened everywhere. And what happened in, in, to the Samaritans, they were picking up these things that weren't quite right and their ideas about God weren't quite right. And Jesus challenged them, said, God, you don't really know what you're talking about. But he reached out and ministered to them uh, and kind of lifted them up. Uh, remember, Jesus gave the, the, prince, the parable of the good Samaritan. They didn't like the Samaritans. Now, whether or not this was actually a real person, probably not, probably just... Uh, another one of Jesus' parables, and the fact that he was using a Samaritan who was being nicer than all the religious Jews is a little insulting to them at the time. But uh, so Jesus is, you know, if you remember the story, this guy's beat up and uh, he's in trouble and this, you know, priest comes, oh, he's, he's too busy, he's got to move on. And, you know, and the other guy said, well, I'd like to stop, but, you know, I got to go to church, you know, so the other, all this religious nonsense didn't help him. And the Samaritan came and he helped the guy. And Jesus praised this guy. And again, that kind of stick it, stuck it in their eye a bit because they didn't like the Samaritans, but Jesus was talking about how this Samaritan was so kind to him. And so he's opening the door to the Samaritans. He's ministering to the Samaritans. If there's one thing that the Christians understood at this point is that it's okay to reach out to the Samaritans. They are our Jewish brothers. And I think Jesus intentionally reached out to them because they are, in fact, part of the Jewish heritage, not the purest of heritage, but they were still Jewish, a little mix-up in their heads, <laughs> and not pure Jewish lines, but they, were, they had the line of Abraham in them, and uh, so he reached out to them. So <clears throat> what happens is the heat comes on, they scatter, all right? Uh, it's often said that persecution was the first uh, missionary board in churches because up to this point, they're all hanging in Jerusalem, right? They're chilling. They got their, their commune going. Everything's great. Everything's happening. Why leave? Right? It's like, you know, uh, being in the nest. It's comfy until mom and dad drag you out and throw you off the cliff. <laughs> Suddenly you got to learn to fly. So the heat comes on, the persecution comes on. Why did God allow that? Look, Jesus said they would hate us. But you have to see that clearly the persecution is what scattered Christianity. They were trying to stomp it out. But what, in fact, they did was spread it everywhere. It's like, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're trying to put out a fire and quickly it gets out of control <laughs> and it's not going the way you want. And the more you try to put it out, the more it's catching other stuff on fire. You know, I've, I've been there. It's not a good experience. So anyway, they've done all kinds of stupid things. So they did that, and now they're everywhere, Judea and Samaria. Verse 2, now, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply f- for him. I thought that was... A bit odd, but you know, I think part of it is their culture, uh, and you can see it to this day. 
you know, Middle Eastern culture, when someone dies, it's a production, man. I mean, they howl, they wail, they throw dirt in the air and stuff like that. And these guys, still Jewish culture, uh, mourn deeply and stuff. Again, as Christianity grows and they start learning more and more, Paul starts encouraging them. The writers start encouraging them, look, we don't have to mourn like those who don't have any hope. So to the point that today, and really for the last 2,000 years, if you truly understand Christianity, it's always sad when someone that you die loves, but if someone who is a true Christian dies, there's not this deep, horrible mourning. Because we know, hallelujah, they've just moved on. They've checked out. We look at that body, and we know they're not there anymore. Okay, so I don't know, uh, as a devout Christian, if you've ever been to a funeral where people are not devout Christians, it's a whole different ballgame. There's heaviness, it's grief, it's just awful. Uh, but when people who really know Jesus dies, it's a whole nother ballgame. But anyway, you know, they're, they're still learning these things. He dies, they're mourning deeply. But Saul, this lovely fellow who approved of the killing of uh, Stephen, was encouraged, I'm sure, by all the hoity-toities in Jerusalem and all the power brokers, said, great job, glad you took, you need to take charge of this stuff. So Saul begins to destroy the church. He says he goes from house to house. He drags off both men and women and starts throwing them in prison. That's why people, let's get out of here. And, uh, and Jesus really taught, you know, if they persecute you, don't stick around. He did tell them, get on with it. You know, don't stand your ground. Get out of there. So uh, now, verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, this is a major, major change in the Christian experience. Because now, up at that point, like, like, they're all hanging there waiting for Jesus to come right back. Now they're going everywhere, and they're telling people about who they are and what they believe, and they're excited. Anybody who's truly encountered Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. You really, it's hard not to say something. <laughs> you know, if it's hard for you to say something, that's not a good sign. Okay, when this really, your heart really gets changed, and you're experiencing the power of God in your life, man, you start to let other people know about it. And that's what they did. So they start spreading everywhere. Now, Philip. Now, he's the second guy. Remember, they would go through, and they're talking about these uh, deacons. Stephen, Philip is one of them. So Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Not talking about Stephen anymore. He's dead. Now, it moves on to Philip. He goes down to the city in Samaria. <gasps> Samaria. Now, it says down. You see on the map, it's actually up. <laughs> he went up to Samaria. So he went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there, which, okay, these people, again, hardcore Jews didn't like these people. They were kind of scumbags. They're half-breeds. They're idiots. They, their religion's all screwed up. They, they've compromised their faith, you know, and they were being real jerks to them. Jesus taught them to reach out to the Samaritans. So they're comfortable at this point preaching the gospel to the Samaritans. So that's what Philip does. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, now there we go. Here's a deacon. Up at this point, it's the apostles doing signs. And I think to a great degree they did some incredible signs that really helped to establish the legitimacy of who they were, walking with Jesus as apostles in the church. But those who would argue, and I'm sure nobody in this group would, or anybody listening to me, but a lot of times there's groups of people who say, no, miracles and stuff, they want to say that all that was really just for the apostles. No, this is not the apostles anymore. This is a deacon, which they were basically in charge of serving tables. You know, we make the office of deacon, oh, I'm a... I'm a deacon, praise God, you know. Well, back then, a deacon was, hey, make sure everybody gets fed. 
<laughs> there wasn't any sort of hoity-poity uh, stature or anything. So, but yet this guy, he's doing miracles. And people are seeing them. They all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, ah, impure spirits came out of many. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. They basically are going, Christians are starting to go everywhere and did the same kind of things that Jesus did in the name of Jesus, showing that the power of God was not limited to just one location. The Spirit of God has now come, filled them, and now they're going everywhere and they're duplicating. They're supposed to be spreading the gospel, spreading the love of God, spreading miracles in people's lives, praying for people and trying to, you know, it's like you're splashing around and get the water over everybody that you can. So there was great joy in the city. Now, in Samaria, now remember, this is Samaria, they're, they're kind of a little goofy in the head. Now, for some time, a man named Simon, thank you, for a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. Now, what is he doing practicing sorcery? Again, their theology's a little screwed up, okay? They were Jews, but had allowed pagan influences into their culture, and one of the pagan culture's influences they had allowed in was sorcery, you know, and, you know, witchcraft and Ouija boards and what, I don't know, tarot cards, I have no idea what they're, what they're all doing, but all this kind of stuff we as Christians are supposed to avoid. So he's there, and he, but he's really good at it. He's really into the dark arts, and he's doing some pretty impressive things, and the Bible says that uh, all the people of Samaria were amazed. He boasted, put it back up there. Follow along. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. And they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Now, I don't know what it was that he did, but it, he was into enough dark art that there were things happening. You have to remember, there is a real live God, but from the beginning we see in the Bible that there's also a very dark side that has some power. Now, it was, it's never been a match to the power of God. You don't have to be afraid of people who, you know, claim this, that, or the other. It's, it's, uh, I know Christians who just get scared to death about anything they think is remotely tied to something that way back when was tied to something evil. You know, you can't have an, a plastic owl on your front lawn because an owl is a sign of witchcraft. And if you have a plastic owl on your house, you're not going to have the power of God in your house. Seriously? It's just a stupid plastic owl. Okay? And I don't care what it's made out of. It doesn't mean jack. We don't have to wander around being afraid of people. You run into someone says, you know, well, I'm into this, this, don't go, oh, 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 and run away from them. Stop. It's piddly squat compared to the power of God that is in us. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. All right? And just chill out. You know, those people already get nervous because Halloween's coming. Seriously? Check your medication, for heaven's sakes. You know, why is a little rugrats running around, dress up like monkeys and asking for candy? Some of them might be my grandkids, actually, because I take them. <laughs> and I know some of you don't because you think it's so, I don't care, you know. That's your line of faith, not to ridicule, although I just did. But, uh, 
uh, you know, you don't want to do it. I'm not going to give you a hard time. Uh, we don't believe in it. We, you know, we lock the house and turn off the lights and sit around and sing Kumbaya to keep away evil spirits. All right. You know, if that's your faith, okay. But seriously, well, pastor, back in the such and such time in the such and such century on Hallow's Eve, they all sat around and danced naked and howled at the moon. Okay, but nobody's doing that today, okay? And besides, greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. And I'm sort of not going to tell my kids, you can't go out and get free candy because we believe in Jesus. <laughs> right? But it's free. <laughs> but it's free. It's free. That's why. Let's go get it. <laughs> now, I get it if you don't want them dressing up like demons and stuff like that, make them dress up like Bible characters, you know, or something innocuous like... The girl from, uh, what's that stupid movie all these little kids see? Girls? Frozen. Ugh, you know, like 18 million times the stupid songs in this thing. They want to dress up like, what was the lady's name in Frozen? Elsa. See, you guys are more twisted than I am. So, yeah, you want to watch You dress up like Elsa. So who cares? But I mean, people I know already. They're already just, and their hearts are just, you know, freaking out because Halloween's coming. I, Christians literally get afraid of this stuff. Seriously? We don't be afraid of this stuff. We got the power of God in us. It's them that are afraid of us. Whenever Jesus came in, the demons freaked. They went, ah! All right? And it wasn't, well, that was Jesus. No, no, no. Now we have one of the table waiters here. And he comes, and the spirits see him and go, ah! I told the story a long time ago, I don't remember it, but uh, I've only got five stories. But uh, uh, we were in uh, Dallas, Texas, and we were at some conference on marriage and stuff like that. And so this lady comes up to me, and she's a real nice lady, and she's talking and stuff, you know, and, and I'm, I'm engaged with her talking, and she says, you know, what do you do? You know, where do you come from? I said, well, actually, I'm a pastor. And I, says, and she, and I asked her, what do you do? She says, I'm a witch. And I, and I said, are you a good witch or a bad witch? You know, like she'd never heard that before. And, uh, you know, she's a wicked witch, you know. Well, Pastor, did you freak out? No, it's just a dumb witch, for heaven's sakes. All right, I wasn't afraid of that. You know, so she says, oh, I want to learn more about you guys. You seem really fab. You know, can we all get together for dinner tonight? I said, absolutely. So they took off. I went to my guys and said, hey, we're having dinner with a witch. And, <laughs> and they looked at me like, so just relax, it'll be fine. So we go to dinner, we're hanging out with the witch and all her witchlets. And, uh, and we're laughing and chilling and stuff, and she's looking at me. And so finally she says to me, you say you're a pastor. I go, yeah. So what kind of pastor? You know, you've got real liberal, open-minded pastors, and you've got the real conservative, Bible-believing pastor. Which ones are you? I said, I'm one of the real conservative Bible-believing pastors. And she looks at me, she says, then why are you being nice to me? I have never met a Bible-believing Christian who wasn't mean to me. Which they were mean to as soon as they found out she was a witch. I said, oh, sweetheart, they mean well, but they're, you know, just, I kind of blew it off and said, that's cool. You know, we love you, God loves you, you know. So when I talk her into coming to my presentation the next day, so she comes. I'm talking, there's the witch, you know, doing my thing. And when she gets done, she runs up to me and goes, ah, you make me want to become a Christian. And she ran away. 
I haven't seen her since. <laughs> you know. Weren't you freaked out by the witch? No. I wonder what they sing at their funerals. Ding dong. No, that would be a bad song. <laughs> It'd be appropriate, right? They're witches. Ding dong, the witch is dead. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what they do with her at a witch funeral. <laughs> what am I talking about? So anyway, so this guy, he's the witch. So now in verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women, and Simon himself believes and is baptized. He becomes a believer, and he gets baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere. He was just amazed and astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. And I have to remember, he was into that kind of stuff, but through sorcery, but now he's watching the power of God. Then when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, a little stretch for them, but okay. You know, Jesus taught us that they're cool. So they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. Uh, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now nothing messes more with your theology than reading the Bible. It's a very funny statement if you think about it. What I mean by that are people have real strong opinions about this, that, and the other, and then they run into parts of the Bible that really messes with the theology. Here's the theology today. The bulk of Christians today, or not, I shouldn't say the bulk, I don't have no idea, a many, a, a, a lot of Christians today believe that when you pray and ask Jesus in your heart, that's when you totally receive the Holy Spirit and that's the end of it. And then there's argument about, well, when do you receive the Holy Spirit and when you don't? There's others who say, well, that doesn't happen until you pray for the Holy Spirit. Well, clearly the Spirit of God, something happens when you're born again. You're born again of the Spirit, Jesus said, right? So the Spirit of God has to touch you and you know how, so they, they all get into this big debate. And I don't claim to understand it all. I will say this, it's virtually impossible to read the book of Acts and not come away with a sense that there is a definite separate experience. They talked about believing, they talked about being baptized. I also talked about repenting, okay? Uh, those three, and being prayed for to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, you might be one of those who argues, no, no, that all happens when you, when you first ask Jesus in your heart. I will say this, that as we read through here, you're gonna see that it happens in all kinds of order. There's no order to this. God just does whatever he wants to do. Where people, before they did anything, would just start speaking in tongues and being filled with the Holy Spirit. They hadn't been baptized. At that point, they didn't even confess Jesus. I mean, you know, God's going to do what he wants to do, okay? But to say that there is no delineation between these experiences, I think is a stretch. And I know that messes with some of you and some people listen to me and because some people really had that thing about it. But, uh, you know, clearly, they approached it as a separate experience. Now the big argument is, if it is a separate experience, what happens when that experience happens? Most of the time in the book of Acts, it says they spoke in tongues. So then you got the hardcore Pentecostals who argue that that is the biblical standard. If you have filled the Holy Spirit, you will speak in tongues. Uh, there's a few times where it says they are filled with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't say what happened, so we don't know. Uh, there are people 
even historically throughout the church, who were powerfully used by God and filled with the Holy Spirit, who never claimed to speak in tongues. So we at this church don't take that hardcore position, but we certainly allow and encourage it. Many people in this church speak in tongues, yours truly being among them. And uh, it's a fabulous, wonderful experience. So when I've never done that, well, you know, that's why we have the Holy Spirit classes that we have in our church where we just go through these things and we specifically pray for people. Does everyone who get prayed for uh, speak in tongues? They do not. Many do. Others, I don't know. It's just that they gather together, we lay hands on them, we do what the Bible says, we pray this impartation and infilling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, all churches really historically have understood these things. Mainline churches, you know, the big box retailers. <laughs> The Walmart church, you know, sorry, Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, or whatever they all are, you know, they believe in these fundamental things, but they've got, I think their order's all jacked up. That's my person. If you're a Catholic, God bless you, you know, Lutherans get mad at me, but peace. Okay, I'm just talking about the Bible, so I know your traditions say different things, but what they do is, right out of the womb, the first thing they do is baptize them, which in the Bible, the only people who ever were baptized were people who were adults who made the decision to follow God and believed and repented and then were baptized. Uh, and then, so they baptize them right out of the womb and then when they're a certain age, they have them confirmed. And for them, confirming is when they lay hands for to confirm is when they receive the Holy Spirit. That's their whole thing. And, but I think they're, you know, whether or not anybody ever, the believing is assumed and the repenting, they just figure you, you work that out as you go along the way. So... Again, I think their order's a little jacked up. Uh, it's hard to really take a hard stance on the order because you will see as we go through this, the order starts getting all over the place. If it would all stay the same, you would say, this is what has to happen. First of all, you have to believe in your heart. Then you have to say it with your mouth. You have to turn away from your sins. You need to be baptized. And then you receive the Holy Spirit. That would seem a logical progression. But it's not like that. There are places, again, where it would happen in just different orders. And we'll see this God is sovereign. God's going to do what he wants to do. What I will say is that the empowering of the Holy Spirit that these people have that just, boom, had them electrified and changed the world upside down were people who experienced this thing where they would be prayed for to receive the Holy Spirit or something unique about them to receive the Holy Spirit. If you're curious about this, you've never even prayed those kind of prayers, again, let me encourage you, get involved in our Holy Spirit classes here at uh, the various campuses, different guys do them here. Pastor Lathan does a lot of them. Uh, whether we teach about it, really get into it, have special prayer for you to receive the Holy Spirit, that kind of thing. And uh, so anyway, uh, I just think it's a great disservice and certainly a real stretch against what we see in the book of Acts to say that you're filled with the Holy Spirit the minute you believe in Jesus. Because that's clearly not what happens. Now, there were a couple of cases where it did happen instantly. Uh, but again, the Bible will mess you with your theology, what you think. So. so anyway, these guys all had believed. They had repented. They were rejoicing. Peter and John come along. They lay hands on them for them to receive the Holy Spirit, a distinct experience. If you have not distinctly done that and had that kind of prayer in your life, I encourage you highly to do it. Talk to your campus pastor, all right? And let's get some prayer for you. Now, when Simon, the verse 18 says this, when Simon saw that the spirit was giving on at the laying on of the apostles' hands, now what does that mean? What happened when he laid their hands on them? At this point, all we've known is whenever someone would be filled with the Holy Spirit, they would speak in tongues. Is that what was happening? 
a hardcore Pentecostal would say, absolutely, that's why Simon was intrigued by it. But we don't know that. Who knows what happened? Did something happen? Did they just glow more? Were they just happier? I mean, I don't know. All we know is that Simon saw them being filled with the Holy Spirit, and clearly these people were now much more empowered. So this is what it says in verse 18. Pop it back up there. There we go. When Simon saw that the Spirit was giving at the laying on of hands, he offered them money, the apostles' money, and said, give me this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Again, something is happening that is a distinct, separate experience from just believing in Jesus. I know this messes with some of you, but we're talking the Bible here. I'm not going to change it just because you don't agree with this stuff. Whether or not you want to speak in tongues, you can have that debate. I'm just saying something uniquely happens here. And he wanted that ability. So he comes to Peter and says, man, I got, you know, here's 500 bucks. Who knows how much he was offering him. Give me some cash. I want to do that. Now, his motives were right. To a degree, he saw this. He wanted to do it too. Although it would be easy to assume, here's a guy who's walked around in great power and you know, had the big status, and now his status isn't as big because these other guys, maybe if I can do this, maybe we're speaking into his ego. We don't know. Um, but anyway, so Peter answers him, verse 20. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So immediately he repents. Now Simon is greatly slammed because of what he does here. And historically, according to some early Christian history, assuming they got it right or whatever, uh, it points to Simon, probably this Simon, as one who becomes a heretic in the church and does great damage uh, in people's lives. Was it the same guy? I don't know. All I know is this, is the guy, it says, he becomes a believer in Jesus. He is baptized. Uh, He starts to do something inappropriate. They rebuke him. He immediately asks for forgiveness and, and, and wants to make it right. So up until this point, again, we don't know. He might turn into this bad Simon that, you know, maybe he never shook it. I will say this. Here's what happened. And we've talked about this so many times, especially whenever we do a baptismal service. When you believe in Jesus and you are born again, you are a new creation. All things become new. But there are patterns that have been hardwired into you. And the later you are in life that you become a believer, the harder it is to shake these patterns. That's why it's better to train your children. Many of you are here in Green Bay, and your children are being trained. Or in in Stephen's point, your children are being trained in the other things. Better to train them early so they don't get into all these crazy things or get all kinds of bad habits. But uh, just because you believe in Jesus and he changes your life, I shouldn't say just because, that's a big deal, but you'll still struggle. I mean, if you were a womanizing piece of caca and you get saved and Jesus changes your life, it will be so easy to slip back into being a womanizing piece of caca. It just, it is what it is. It's like riding a bicycle, you know? Some of you haven't ridden a bicycle. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but in decades, some people, 40, 50, 60 years, I mean, but you hand them a bicycle, they can ride it. 
Why? Once you learn it, you know it. And even without the practice, it's wired into you. You know how there's lots of things like that. The guitar, I can pick up the guitar and I won't bore you, but I can, I can pick up and still play some pretty impressive things on the guitar. I never practice it. I, sometimes like, I'll go years at a time without ever touching the dumb guitar. But I remember because I learned it when I was a song, some, some of these songs when I was 13 years old. And you just learn them and you get hardwired. And they actually talk about how your brain and your, you know, whatever sport that you do, you, you, your body learns these things. So you can perform these sports later or uh, musicians later. Or so you're, you know, it'd be pretty rough or stuff. Even the bike after 60 years, I suppose, is a little rough. But you still can do these things. Just like that is true in the physical, it's that true in the spiritual, in your soul. And what happens is without Christ, if, if you, uh, you know, really used to just yell and scream and go crazy and cycle and be mad all the time, and then you come to Jesus and you're born again, somebody pushes the right buttons, chances are you're going to yell and scream and go cycle. And of course, we try to justify it. Well, you know, you know I'm German, I can't help it. You know, well, it doesn't matter whatever you are. What you need to do is learn to be transformed, the Bible says, by the renewing of your mind. You can change the way you think by getting your head in the scriptures. And I applaud all of you who are getting into the scriptures with us. We have a big church. If you look around your campus, even here, Comparatively, not that many people here. We try and encourage them, but people just don't take this seriously enough. Uh, you're not going to change if you don't change intentionally. And you need to change the way you think and approach life differently. The Word of God will transform you and change so that you start having victory over these areas in life. But here's uh, uh, Simon, who was this controlling, manipulating guy. He'd only been a Christian for. Is it hours, days? I don't know. And boom, he falls right back in that same pattern again. And he gets rebuked and he pulls back. And, you know, so that, that happens. Uh, that's why you need to really grow in your faith. Even though you've been dramatically changed and set free from the guilt of sin, those patterns are still hardwired. Don't just blow them off. I, you know, I can't help it. You know, I, I looked at porn when I was 12. I'm still looking at porn. No, stop. Well, I can't. Sure you can't. <laughs> you can't. Nothing can control you if you'll give yourself totally uh, to getting the word of God in you and changing you. And whatever the sin is, there's all kinds of lies. You know, I, I, I just lie. Okay, no, I still lie. <laughs> it's just a bad habit. Stop it. Okay? Give yourselves to the word of God. Let God change you through your soul. See, our spirits get transformed. Our body is kind of a lost cause. <laughs> But our souls can still be transformed by the renewing of our minds, getting God's word, his thoughts, his promises into your head, and you start to rewire. And you'll start to find as you grow in your faith, you start to react differently. And now you don't have these automatic things that used to go back to. There's, and even still, you can do this a lot, but deep under and all that stuff, the potential's still there. That's why you pray, keep us from temptation. Okay, so anyway, so that's what happens with Simon. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So on the way back, they're still hanging out at Jerusalem. That's their thing. But they're going to these Samaritan villages. And, and now the gospel's starting to, to sprinkle out, starting to get scattered about. Now, we're back with Philip here, okay? Philip is the one who started all this stuff in the first place. He comes up to the Samaritan town. Everybody gets saved. You know, they're praying for these people. Now, verse 26 is now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, 
Go south to the road, to the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, that's pretty cool. I don't know how many of you angels show up and tell you what to do next. I would really encourage that. <laughs> I don't think there's anything you can control, you know. Uh, and, and we're going to start seeing some of these dramatic things that happen in the book of Acts. Even so, we don't know but what God spoke to them. We'll see that when we get to the conversion of Saul here in a little bit. Uh, you know, uh, God speaks to this one guy, said, hey, go pray for Saul. He had a vision that you're going to come and pray for him. You know, all these things are tied together and how some, oftentimes God would tell them what to do before they would do it and, or go here and this thing's going to happen like here. I want you to go down and do something specific and he shows up. Sometimes we just see them doing something. We think that they just did it off the cuff. We don't know. You know, uh, when Peter told that guy at, the, at the, the beggar at that gate in chapter two or whatever, three, and said, hey, in the name of Jesus, stand and walk. He might have had a vision about that before he did it. You know, maybe he was praying and had a dream and saw something about this guy, and he sees that guy and just, that's, maybe that's why he has so much boldness. I don't know. It's easy to have boldness when, I don't know, an angel tells you to go do something, right? So... Anyway, so that kind of puts some of the context. Sometimes you think, well, gee, maybe I should just walk up to people in Walmart that are in a wheelchair and say, in the name of Jesus, stand up. But he'll probably just go flying and, and crash, and then you'll be arrested. So, you know, and there's people who say you should do that, right? I mean, we've heard this. So if you're hardcore Pentecostal, they try to do this to everybody. But we don't know that because if you look in the fine print, oftentimes God would tell them in real specific ways what was going to happen if they do something. Well, once God's giving you that green light, it's easy to be really bold and go do something. Uh, a lot of what we do is much more by faith and baby steps as we go along. I encourage you not to pull people out of wheelchairs unless an angel tells you to or had some vision or whatever. All right, so, so an angel of the Lord tells Philip, go down to whatever this road to Gaza. So he started out, verse 27, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, that's an Ethiopian without... <laughs> There's no junk in that trunk, you know what I'm saying? And so he's, he's been snipped. Okay, you say, well, what a horrible thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of attached to mine, personally, you know, <laughs> It's a bad word. I don't know how to say it, but, but uh, it's hard for a man to even imagine. But in this culture, you have to remember, people often lived lives of misery and poverty their entire lives. This wasn't the United States of America. This wasn't Western culture where most of us live in middle-class comfort. And most of us, even the poorest among us here, compared to the rest of the world, is insanely rich, right? Well, back in these times, there was poverty. You eked out a miserable living. There was, but then they would bring these boys and they would uh, offer them into the service of the king or the queen or whatever like that, offer them up as eunuchs, you know, of course they didn't really know what they were missing. <laughs> and, uh, and as a result of being a eunuch, they often got lifted up into very high, they were highly valued. They weren't low class slaves. Eunuchs were like big deal guys who were well taken care of, had lots of authority and stuff. And the reason guys would do this is because they wanted these highly educated men and very strong men so like, to take care of the women in their lives. And they were never a threat because there was no junk, all right? So anyway, so here's this Ethiopian eunuch. 
He's an important official, that's the point, in the charge of all the treasury of Candace, which means queen of the Ethiopians. Uh, so this man, uh, he's a hoity-toity, up-the-ladder guy. He's an Ethiopian guy, undoubtedly probably a black man. He's from Ethiopia, but a very powerful official. He's a eunuch, but he has all this power. He uh, works for the queen. And he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now, now we're starting to get, we're stretching it now. Because up at this point, the, only Jews could be saved. Remember, this is a big thing to them. If you weren't Jewish, you know, there's Jews, then there's chicken, cattle, and Gentiles. We, we weren't really highly thought of by these people. Well, then they got to the point, because of what Jesus said, where, okay, we'll, we'll bring the Samaritans in. So now it's spread throughout Judea and Samaria. So now he's talking to this black dude from Samaria, from Ethiopia. Undoubtedly a, uh, a non Jew, but may have been a convert to, to Judaism, although it's limited because uh, men who were like this weren't allowed to go into the temple and stuff because if you weren't, if you didn't have your things, you know, <laughs> you weren't allowed in. I didn't make up the rules. I don't know what they were thinking. But uh, so, you know, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was certainly wanting to learn about God. So you could guess, I guess you could call him a, a convert to Judaism, so maybe he still felt comfortable talking to him. But what you're seeing here is God starts pushing them. And he pushes them into the Samaritans. Now we're going to push into this Gentile, even though he's a, maybe a convert or certainly a believer in Judaism. Then you're going to see Cornelius coming up in a bit, or he's a centurion. He's a Roman guard. The Romans, man, these guys are absolute Gentile slime bags. But he had a heart for God, and the Jews really liked him. And, now we're, and then that's when it starts to bust loose. That's when they start to discover that anybody could be saved. That's when Christianity goes nuts. That's when it spreads like wildfire. It's like gasoline on the fire. But to get them there was a big struggle for them. So you can see that the Lord is kind of, you know, just baby steps, kind of pushing them in this direction getting away from just hanging out in Jerusalem with just Jewish people, or even all over the world there were just Jewish people. They always preached to these people, but uh, this idea of stretching it out beyond that purest Jewish uh, mentality. So, uh, so this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot uh, with the engine running, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay Near it. Now, here the Holy Spirit tells him specifically, go to talk. First of all, an angel tells him to go down there. He gets down there, he's just obeying a direction. The Holy Spirit goes to talk to the, this guy. Clearly, God wanted this guy. All right? Now, that's not to say that you don't share your faith unless an angel shows up or the Holy Spirit tells you. There are people I know who literally have never shared their faith with anybody, and their excuse is, well, I'm just waiting for the Holy Spirit to tell me to do it. Now, that's a bad thing. You don't need that because we have the, uh, the uh, instructions from Jesus just to go into all the world and share the gospel with everybody. We should all be doing that. But if on your journey of faith and you're touching people's lives and all of a sudden you feel the Holy Spirit of a thought, a strong thought, a voice that comes into your head and says, hey, man, go talk to that guy. I would agree. Go talk to that guy. You don't know what's going to happen. So that's what happens to Philip. He's there intentionally because of this direction and now he's there and the Holy Spirit points him to this Ethiopian eunuch. 
Uh, so Philip runs up to the chariot, heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? You know, so obviously he's reading out loud. And, uh, and the guy says, no, how can I understand it unless somebody explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and uh, sit with him in the chariot. And this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. Now, this is from Isaiah. And you can see here that it's a description of Jesus, the Messiah. It was a prophecy about Jesus. It said, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Remember when he was on trial before, uh, you know, Herod and everybody else, and they're asking questions, he didn't say anything. He totally just didn't defend himself. Um, in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who could speak of his descendants? He had no children. He had no family. For his life was taken from this earth. And Philip, and, and if you go on, it's one of the most powerful prophecies of the Messiah in Isaiah. And it's just a dramatic description of what Jesus, who Jesus was and what he did. So the eunuch asks Philip, tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? <laughs> Talk about an opening. <laughs> So Philip goes, well, I'll tell you what it means. And at that very passage of scripture, he started and told him the good news about Jesus. So he starts sharing with him the good news. Clearly, God wanted this man. Now, what happens to him, we don't know. But my guess, right now they're going into Samaria, which is north. We'll see it on the maps next week. And then up into, uh, uh, you know, uh, Damascus and every place else. And eventually spread all over the place. But this guy's from Ethiopia. So he undoubtedly went back to his homeland and started sharing the gospel. And without a doubt, Christianity started sparking all over. And it's just it's how the gospel went. People just sharing with other people what God had done in their lives. So now this spark of the gospel is in, uh, in Ethiopia. And, and uh, who knows how many people come to Jesus as a result of this one encounter. We don't know. It doesn't say. But anyway... It says in verse 36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch says, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. So I mean, this, he doesn't just have his chariot. He's got like his peeps, you know, that are just, he's, he's a powerful man. Okay, hey, Sammy, pull over. All right, so they get out and uh, uh, they went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And when they came out, now, and here's the interesting thing. At this point, <laughs> here again, with the whole theology, so what happens in what order? There's no indication that the Holy Spirit, nobody laid hands on this guy to receive the Holy Spirit at this point, or, and who knows who else he ran into later. We don't know. All we know at this point is he's baptized. As soon as he's baptized, I love this, as soon as they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch didn't see him again. This is the first beat me up, Scotty, Okay? He literally is transported from one location to another. I say, Pastor, do I have to worry about that? Probably not. I don't, I don't know anyone that's ever happened to except this guy, you know. But God um, clearly, see, when God really wants stuff done, he makes sure it gets done. And this is why I encourage people who get all freaked out about, how, Pastor, how will I know the will of God? How will I know the will of God? Just relax. Do what you know you're supposed to do. If God wants something specifically from you, he will tell you. Right? How many of you have children? Okay. Now, put me back on the screen. Thank you. <laughs> Give them a hand, whoever's doing it back there. Yes. 
I probably he keeps talking. I don't understand what he's saying. All right, so if you have children, now let me ask you, when you have children, do you tell them what you want or do you wait for them to come and seek your face? If, you have, if you're a supervisor or you own your own business, do you tell your employees what you want or do you wait for them to come and sit at your feet and ask you what you Now, Jesus often used this analogy when he talked like this. He'd say, if you being evil know how to do this stuff, how much more your heavenly father? This idea that the only way to know God's will and that it's a mystery and he's hiding it from you and you gotta come and spend time, oh God, please tell me, please tell me, please tell me. (laughs) And there's people who actually encourage this. I do not encourage such things. I think God is a big boy. If he wants something specific from you, he will tell you. And he will make it clear. He certainly has in my life. And we don't have time for the stars. I'll tell them as we go along. It's from sure from time to time. But God knows exactly how to get you where he wants you. At first, you may not understand it. Some of you might get fired unexpectedly. And you'll be mad at God. Until you find out someone else is offering you a better job and now you're making twice as much money. Then you shut up. Right? Why? Because he wants you over there for some reason. I don't know. Maybe we're going to meet some Ethiopian eunuch. and have eunuchs anymore with or if they do, we don't know. Uh, we don't ask those questions. So uh, he, he uh, is going there. He baptizes the guy, comes out, and boom, the guy is instantly gone. <laughs> now that's a rush, right? The guy who baptizes you, if Pastor Latham baptizes you, come out, and boom, he disappears. Whoa, that's very cool. So suddenly, the Spirit of God takes him away, and the unit didn't see him again. And when he goes on his way rejoicing, this guy's happy. He just got born again. His life is changed. Philip, however, all of a sudden appears at Azostus. Boink. How cool is that? Now, do you think, it doesn't say he was begging and pleading for God to tell him what to do. You know, things got to get going. He didn't have time. God said, okay, you're done. Baptize the guy. And he pops up in this other place. Very cool. Of course, they didn't have airfare. Uh, So anyway, then he starts preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reaches Caesarea. And on our map, I'll show you where Caesarea is. So anyway, all this stuff is starting to take off rather rapidly. And, uh, And you'll see that God is stretching them and getting them to the point to where they could understand that people like you and I could come to know Christ. Because up to this point, they didn't think they could. And make no mistake, one of the biggest arguments in the New Testament, we'll see it over and over again, is some people never believed that people like you and me could be saved because we weren't Jewish. If you didn't become a Jew, if you were a man and you didn't get circumcised, you, know, if you, didn't, why, you couldn't possibly be saved. And that's one of the big arguments they had throughout the New Testament. But clearly, that was a line of uh, thinking that was eventually totally thrown away and we go all over the world today sharing the good news about Jesus. The other thing that's real interesting as we get into this, you'll find that the main reason the Jews rejected Christianity wasn't because they said Jesus was the Messiah. See, people always think that, right? Well, they didn't, they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. That wasn't their problem. You'll see some of these sermons that they preach. Whenever they talk about Jesus the Messiah, they sat there and listened. It wasn't until they said, but now everybody and even non-Jews can be saved. They went crazy. That's why they rejected it. Because of people like Betts, you know, if they're going to let him in, this is ruling the whole club, right? They'll let anybody in this place. So, <laughs> so anyway, so it's going to be fun. But what's neat is chapter 9, verse 1 says, Meanwhile, 
back at the ranch. So we're going to pick it up there next week, and we're going to find out. Meanwhile, Saul is still causing problems. This Saul that get everybody scattering, and now Christianity is going everywhere. He's going out. He is on a bloodthirst. He is going out. He's arresting people. He's busting everybody he can. And then he goes for permission that he could go far away to other cities to go after Christians and get them. And there we're going to see what happens. It's very cool. All right. Y'all have fun? All right. Great. God bless you. We'll see you next Wednesday. Bye-bye. <laughs>